Well, welcome everyone uh, to this uh, Herbert Smith Freehills webinar dealing with underpayments and wage theft. I use the latter term in inverted commas just so that um, I'm not judging anyone on this. Uh, my name is Tony Wood. I'm a partner of the employment team here at Herbert Smith Freehills in Melbourne, and I'm delighted to be joined by my colleagues from throughout the, the nation, um, going from maybe north to south. Uh, Wendy Favell is a uh, special counsel in our uh, Brisbane office. Hi, Wendy. And uh, Romo Pandit is uh, a senior lawyer, a senior associate in our Sydney team. Romo, how are you doing? And Anna Cregan is a partner in our Perth office. So uh, welcome, Anna, and thanks everyone for joining us uh, today. Before we uh, get underway, I'd just like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands from which at least I'm broadcasting today, which is in Melbourne, um, the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, and to pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging, and uh, express those sentiments uh, throughout Australia, wherever you may be. Um, we have a great team and the, uh, to join our panel today, and the discussion is one that is so relevant to many of our clients. Uh, over the last 12 months and certainly probably two years, uh, we've probably never been busier uh, in dealing with and assisting clients in the space of underpayments. And the issue has seemingly um, come from nowhere, at least when you compare the or contrast the situation with what it was five and certainly 10 years ago. And whilst it's true, there have always been sporadic and occasional circumstances where employers have underpaid their employees. Um, the depth of uh, the difficulties that have arisen and have been identified um, by the regulator, the Fair Work Ombudsman, uh, have never reached the level that they currently have. And uh, maybe as a, a broad observation, it's been fairly clear to probably all of us on this panel that many employers have realised that they have uh, potentially underinvested in their payroll systems and compliance uh, with the impact that they have found themselves in many cases um, under scrutiny both from employees, unions, and also from the regulator. And some of those issues are things that we are going to discuss and consider today. Who's affected by the underpayments? Is it just large employers or small employers? Is it just those in the hospitality sector? And uh, what can be done or should be being done by uh, employers, whether they face underpayments or don't, uh, can't be sure whether they, they are compliant with their relevant instruments. So maybe just starting generally with what the hell is all the fuss about? Um, Wendy, we, we seem to lump everything into this category of underpayments, but what are we, what are we really talking about when, when, we, when we use that term? So many things, um, and it really differs from employer to, to employer. Just, I mean, the way I see it is there's um, problems with some of the decision-making in the hiring to firing process, like, not applying the correct award, which is one that we're seeing more and more decisions being made about the applicable award based on kind of common sense. Oh no, I'm not in that industry. But when you actually look at the industry and the specifics of the award, you know, now in 2021, 11 years on, oh, actually maybe we are in that industry because of how broad it's drafted. So, so that's a key one. It's kind of decision-making at the, the everyday decisions we made about classification levels, about award coverage, about rates that we're setting. There's errors in that process. 
then there's kind of the, the payroll, I guess, process errors that are cropping up. So people are rolling out new payroll systems and realising that the rules that they've input into the system aren't quite right, aren't working correctly. There might be things that can't be automated that we've done that we haven't actually applied. Um, some have had issues with keeping up to date with the changes in awards which have happened over the various years with the four yearly modern re um, award reviews. Um, the other big one that's been happening particularly in this last year has been annual salaries and making sure that particularly for award covered people where you're paying them a lump sum salary over the course of the year making sure that you know if someone has a particular fortnight that they're working crazy amounts of overtime um, that their annual salary is actually high enough to compensate for the actual hours worked and that's some of the really high, pro high profile examples have dealt with that issue and it's continuing to be a massive issue for corporate Australia. The other piece that's come up more recently has been in relation to long service leave incredibly complex state-by-state state legislation, all different um, changes in Victoria have led to a new regulator in Victoria that's actively auditing long service leave. So people are looking, particularly national employers, are looking at, at their long service leave systems and, and trying to figure out whether, whether everything's on track or not. So they're just some, some of the glimpses of the broad issues that people are facing. So, so I think the um, the annualised salary issue is really fascinating. It's one that seems to affect many, if not most, employers. That, that we saw what a year or so ago that many of the modern awards were varied to allow what was called an annualised wage, and many of us, including me, were very critical of that decision because it was so highly prescriptive and it made it extremely difficult by the creation of fictional outer limits and the like for for constructing the arrangements that most employers stood with what they'd had in place traditionally, which was an annual salary arrangement. But the point you made, Wendy, is that you might pay someone, say, $100,000 a year, but if if their weekly uh, uh, pay uh, doesn't extinguish the obligation, if they work a very high amount of overtime, say in that in that pay period, that weekly or fortnightly period, then they're still exposed potentially for breaching the requirement of that industrial instrument, right? Isn't that that's the essence of the issue, right? The essence of the issue, and also a lot of these people who are white collar in office environments who are award covered, the the kind. Of, assumption that a lot of employers have made is, oh, we're paying so much above the award, we're fine. So things like um, record keeping of actual hours, record keeping of overtime hours, processes involved in the approval of overtime just haven't been there. So you've got situations now where you've got um, a lot of office workers who are paid an annual salary. We don't actually know the hours that they work, or we might know the hours, but there aren't reconciliations being done. To, to reflect whether, hang on, are we actually above award like we think or, or are we falling short? So it's, it's a big or, issue for everyone, I think. Or as, as you identified, are we indeed covered by the award at all? And if they are, then there are presumably, in most cases, there are obligations to maintain employment records under the regulations and failure to do so itself is, is an offence. And we've seen the Fair Work Ombudsman prosecuting the mere failure of, to maintain the records in addition to any underpayments that, that arise. We'll return to that in a minute. Maybe, again, just to set the scene, Anna, you've been following maybe the, the breadth of the publicity of the cases that have been uh, 
you know, hit, hit the public domain. How many cases are there and how, how do we know about that? Well, we've been tracking this, as you know, Tony, and at last count, there were around 139 cases. So those were cases that had either received some publicity or had resulted in a prosecution. They're just the cases we know about. That's obviously not the entirety of the number of cases that the Berwick Ombudsman is involved in. Um, what that tells us is a couple of things. One is that there has been a lot of activity by the Berwick Ombudsman over the last few years in relation to um, these matters. You, you'll recall there was a lot of publicity around some of these matters, ABC, 7-Eleven, many more of the recent years, um, law firms, other very large-scale businesses. There's been no particular um, area that we think has been targeted. It seems to have been across the board. It, it involves um, scrutiny of the arrangements in smaller employers right through to very large employers. But, but the two things we can draw from that are that there's a lot of activity and that it's not targeted in any particular area of, um, of industry. It seems to be across the board. So, uh, I, thanks, Anna. I, I, I read, uh, well, I think in the last week that the Fair Work Ombudsman has uh, initiated a uh, proceeding against Woolworths. Uh, and it's probably one of the first in the, in the new era, uh, the new phase of, um, of, of a regulator with, with some zeal prosecuting a very large employer. Um, when you've looked at the pleadings in that matter, what, what observations can you make from what the Fair Work Ombudsman have, have, have done in the case of Wallace? The statement of claim is incredibly detailed. Um, it's, it's interesting the broader approach to stepping back as to what they've done. So what they've done is there's clearly been a lot of discussions between um, Woolworths and, and the flow leading up to this. But but what they've done is they've sued in relation to 70 employees. Um, and I think just reading from the from the statement that the FOI put out, the idea would be to have the key interpretation issues in relation to um, that are that are different between Woolworths and FOI dealt with by the court with the request that an order be made that that be extrapolated to the broader population. Because um, there obviously aren't, aren't there are more than seventy employees impacted. It's clear from the pleadings that there are interpretation differences for how Woolworths see the award and how the FOI see the award. And this is the retail award. Um, in circumstances where Woolworths do pay these employees an annual salary, so I think it'll be interesting to see. Um, where the court lands on those issues for those employers who are covered by that award. But also obviously there's there's issues of record keeping in the statement of claim. There's issues of the question of whether the payments should be paid on a fortnightly basis as the FOA asserts in circumstances where they are paid an annual salary. So this will definitely be it's it's significant because it's the first prosecution, I guess, in the in the in this the second tranche of larger employers who are dealing with the FOA on this issue. And, and I'm not going to criticise the FOI or call the FOI the Fairwork Ombudsman on this call because they might be listening and I want to maintain some good relations with them. But they've taken, in one sense, maybe an easy approach with this prosecution because they've selected, you know, 70 employees uh, out of potentially many hundreds of employees and they've confined the period of time uh, of the alleged uh, breaches. So it's, and, and it falls within the period of time where there's effectively an, an onus that falls upon the employer to disprove the, the, the records when they didn't keep records. So they've made an, an easier and logical approach in, in wanting to prosecute it. And presumably by doing that, they can 
presumably get a decision from the court in their favour, which will enable them to either extrapolate uh, outcomes for other employees or to use that as leverage um, for, for perhaps um, getting either an, a further prosecution or an enforceable undertaking in relation to uh, Woolies. Anyway, we'll continue to watch that as, as it unfolds. One um, aspect that we hear a lot about uh, in in, in these type of prosecutions is actually the, the term we, we hear, uh, accessorial liability, and uh, pleasingly for Woolworths, none of the individual uh, either directors or executives have been uh, uh, prosecuted in that proceeding, but nevertheless, they have in other proceedings. So maybe to you, Anna, what, what is this concept of accessorial liability? When does it arise and, and what does it mean? This is liability for an individual where they're involved in a breach of the Fair Work Act. Um, you'll all know there's Section 550 of the Fair Work Act, that's where it emanates from. We have seen this a lot in recent years, uh, firstly in general employment claims, so um, general breaches of the Fair Work Act in relation to dismissals, for example. There have been an increasing trend of, um, of claimants to add HR managers or others involved in the decision to dismiss or similar to uh, add them as a respondent to those proceedings. But what we're seeing now is this happening in the underpayment space. So um, in some cases, the Fair Work Ombudsman turning its attention, <coughs> pardon me, to the involvement of an individual in decisions that have led to a breach of the Fair Work Act in terms of payments. Um, you probably recall there was a, a case which hit the headlines a, a period of time ago involving a human resources manager who had miscalculated the, the termination notice period due to a particular employee. That resulted in, in quite a small underpayment to just one individual, but the Ombudsman uh, prosecuted the human resources manager who was involved in that. And it was found that that human resources manager was involved in a breach of the Fair Work Act and they were um, fined a, a penalty of around $1,000 for that breach. So what this tells us is uh, the regulator is very alert to this as another mechanism for regulation. And there's real scope there for individuals uh, in human resources, but also in other functions. We would expect payroll and other functions like that could come under scrutiny to be personally liable where there are um, uh, breaches of these very detailed obligations in relation to minimum entitlements. Yeah, look, we'll, we'll turn in a minute to the Fair Work Ombudsman and, and their process and, and some of the steps and indeed their guidelines that they use on these things. But in terms of just kind of summarising the, 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 the big picture and, and maybe Romo, it's a good chance to turn to you. You, you're, you do a lot of work um, in the M&A space and the corporate interface between employment and, and, uh, and, and deal making. And I'm interested, I have a general observation and without being critical, um, my experience has been that for many years, it's been really difficult to engage uh, even our, our corporate M&A colleagues or even general counsel on employment issues and and or particular wage compliance issues. I'm wondering, is this having an impact in your, in that space that you're seeing regularly at the moment? Yeah, that's right, Tony. And, and I'm not offended. And historically, employment has been lower down the chain. And you know, when I started, say eight or so years ago, I don't think this issue was even an item on the DD agenda. So we wouldn't have even looked at this other than ask some high level questions around, you know, have you had any material employment related claims? But underpayment. Wasn't, wasn't on the agenda at all. 
in the last few years, I mean, for a lot of the reasons that we've just spoken about, that has completely changed. And it's probably one of the top five items um, that comes up. Historically, you know, it's been with, with employment related matters, usually we care about, you know, what's happening in the key executive space. That's probably number one. And then there are another, a bunch of other items, but hasn't historically involved these sorts of issues. But now I think for a number of different reasons, um, we've touched on them already, but one is it goes to value on a transaction. Um, we're seeing that some of these claims can be in the tens, hundreds of millions of dollars, N not always. And obviously the ones that are reported tend to be the higher value ones with, with bigger companies, but value, it, it, even on when you think about a relatively small scale underpayment, once you multiply it out by a number of weeks, by a number of employees times, you know, usually we do a six year period because that's a limitation period, it does add up. And, you know, I, I know that there are matters where it's a couple of cents every week, but once you multiply that out, it, it can it can make a really big difference. And I'm, I'm talking about things like even like rounding to two decimal places when it comes to cents um, can have a really big financial impact. I think from a diligence perspective, as a buyer, it also goes to what processes the target entity has in place to ensure compliance. Um, and I guess what view it takes to its obligations in relation to employees. Now for some businesses, they might not be as concerned by it, but in particular where you have a people-based business or a you know, professional service-based business, that's going to be a big issue. Um, and then finally, it's the, you know, what is the exposure going forward? What are the implications of, of the risk materializing or us not addressing it now? Um, and that can come in a lot of different forms. I think you've got kind of risk of claims from employees or the regulator, you know, cost of remediation. Um, and a big one, I mean, for, for most clients is reputation. Um, what if we don't address this now? What happens down the track if this becomes an issue? Um, I think for a lot of buyers, there is a question of if there is a historical underpayment, will we be liable going forward? Um, it's always a tough question to answer because I think, you know, if you address it and you fix it going forward, the likelihood of a regulator coming after you might be a bit less, but if you don't assess it and you don't address it, or you don't actually, you know, you don't even bother to find out about it, then you may well be liable for historical underpayments. So, so the, when you're doing your due diligence, there's normally some insurance cover that, that associates with that. Are, you, are the insurers approaching this issue in a particular way? Yeah, insurance, to be honest, it's a, it's a thing that I think, at least in the underpayment space, has changed in the last few years. Um, Initially, it probably wasn't on the radar. Then we had this transitional period where there were a lot of claims around underpayments in the media and insurers did not want to get their hands on it at all. And they would refuse to either insure that on a transaction or they, the cost of the insurance would be so high that the parties would just say, you know what, we'll take a risk on it. Um, over the last, I'd say 24 months, we're seeing a greater appetite from the insurers to insure um, against this underpayment risk. Now, the nature of that and what they expect can be relatively onerous. I'd say as, as a minimum, the insurers would expect, and different insurers have different frameworks um, that they operate under, but as a minimum, they would expect some sort of sample auditing. So I'd say, depending on the insurer, five or 10% of the workforce, or, for, or five or 10% of certain areas within a workforce, I guess, depending on how complicated a company's industrial arrangements are. Um, but that's typically the, those are the numbers you're looking at. I'd say up, up to 10% as a bare minimum um, over a 12 month period up to a six year period. That's, that's the expectation from the insurer in order to get some sort of coverage. That does get negotiated. And again, depends on, um, it does depend on the insurer. It depends on the assessment of risk for that particular industry and for that, for that particular business. 
Um, obviously, if you have highly complex industrial arrangements in place, the expectations will be higher. Whereas if you have a workforce that works relatively steady hours, the, the expectation and I guess the, the ability to satisfy the insurer, um, it's, it's a lot easier to do that. Okay, well, I, I, I get that. And, and as employment lawyers, we all hate doing due diligence work, except you, Romo. So I'm going to refer you all of those in the future. So thanks for that. And look, I wanted to just move on a little bit. Uh, and, and you know, kind of my mastermind subject one day is going to be the, the power and authorities of the Fair Work Ombudsman. But for the moment, I'm going to ask you, <laughs> Anna Cregan in Perth, it seems pretty clear that in the last couple of years that the, the flow has taken a much more muscular approach to its enforcement and investigative powers. And I'm wondering, why is that? Why is anything different? Because the legislation hasn't materially changed in the last five years. So what is it that, that, that's changed in, in your view? Well, that's right, Tony. And it seemed that the turning point was really the Banking Royal Commission and the the um, very clear recommendations that were made by Hain following and in the context of that commission. Um, Hain uh, made a number of comments about how a good regulator should operate, which were pertinent to all regulators in Australia, and which it seems has influenced regulatory activity to a, to a varying degree, but we think to a very large degree in relation to the Ombudsman. Um, the sorts of comments Hain made included, for example, um, that a regulator must always ask whether it can make a case that there has been a breach, and if it can, it must ask why, why it would not be in the public interest to prosecute. So in Hain's view, the starting point was laws are there to be obeyed, he said that, um, and when they're not, there are penalties for breach, and the role of a regulator is not to negotiate with industry, not to negotiate outcomes, but to consider as a starting point, particularly for larger organisations, prosecution and the use of its, its strongest enforcement powers. So that seemed to reset uh, the narrative for a number of regulators and to trigger a change in the way that regulators operate and were expected to operate in Australia. So that was like his initial report was September 2018 and then the final report 2019. It does seem to be a very high correlation and probably not just in, in relation to ASIC, but, but you know the impact on other regulators like the Fair Work Ombudsman. So I, I know that uh, fairly recently uh, they've developed their enforcement and compliance uh, guidelines and maybe, I don't know, Anna or, or Wendy, maybe Anna, start with you. What, 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 what do the, what, what was the purpose of those guidelines or what do they seek to do? So those guidelines explain how um, the Ombudsman proposes to use its statutory powers and what it, um, what it wants industry to know about that. Um, the guidelines set out um, uh, quite a neat summary of what, what the Fair Work Ombudsman can do and how it proposed, what it proposes to do. And in short, um, the Ombudsman has almost all of the statutory powers that, that most regulators have. It can request documents, um, it can enter premises. When it's on premises, it has more powers than it does when it's off premises. When it's off premises, it needs to issue notices, formal notices to request documents. It can interview people, it, it can request to do that. Um, there are some limitations on its powers. It can't uh, record interviews on our analysis. It can't exclude legal, legal counsel from interviews. It can't require the production of privileged materials. Um, but there are a couple of interesting features we think um, of the Ombudsman proposed policy. Uh, it, it certainly differentiates between cases where 
uh, industry participants have self-reported and cases where the Ombudsman has identified itself a breach, it, it, all, it gives off that self-reporting will lead to a, a different and lesser form of enforcement action. And it states that litigation should be reserved for the more serious cases where, um, where it's in the public interest to litigate. But I know that Wendy has been um, seeing a lot of this on the ground and has been uh, quite ensconced in regulatory engagement of late. So she'll have some, some more uh, examples about what that's meant for her. I'll come to that in a second, although you mentioned one of their powers is the the, the power to issue notice or notices to produce. And I think in many of my clients' dealings uh, with those obligations, that can be extremely onerous. And having had clients who have gone through uh, royal commissions before the volume of documents that might pertain to uh, documents that are sought by the Fair Work Ombudsman is, is almost equal in volume. And to comply with uh, pretty tight timeframes at the risk of being prosecuted for failing to comply with the timeframe in providing the documents is, uh, is a fairly scary thought. Maybe Wendy uh, and has invited you to comment on that. What, what do you see in, in, in respect of those notices to produce and the powers that the flow is exerting in the investigatory phase of their dealings? Yeah, I think um, traditionally I've seen the notice to produce be used once a flow investigation is formally commenced. And that was traditionally to, to seek documents around pay records around contracts just to gather the information that they need to then decide whether there's been a contravention of the Act. In, in recent times though, when employers are self-reporting, they are using notices to produce, not necessarily where an investigation has commenced yet, but just in the disclosure stage to try and understand more about the scope of the issue they're dealing with. So you're right, those notices are usually incredibly broad. You think about even just a request for pay slips for 80 people who are paid weekly over a six year period, you can imagine the work involved in something that, you know, could be downloading PDFs for everyone. It's, it's a really time consuming task and very costly for employers. So there's, there's a lot of strategy goes into dealing with each notice that comes across our and desk. And, and sorting through documents that are for, for relevance and then obviously for legal privilege itself is, is a complex task and extremely um, time consuming. Uh, you, can, you can apply some kind of, kinds of artificial intelligence systems to it, but ultimately someone needs to make assessments about the, um, uh, the, the relevance and, of documents in that sense. But I, I want to kind of wind the clock even back a little bit more in this process because the guidelines that the flow has, and by the way, for anyone who's listening and haven't looked on the, the website, they are very clearly and easy to find on the Fair Work Ombudsman's website and they're worth reading. They're, they're only a few pages long. But one, I think one of the most fascinating elements of, of the guidelines is the, uh, the terms that they use on self-reporting. And I want to contextualise it before I turn to you, Wendy, that this is a, a regulator that has got uh, no or no legislative uh, basis to assert that an employer should self-report or self-disclose failure to, uh, to, to meet obligations. What do they say about that in their guidelines? They're pretty clear. So if it's kind of isolated payroll errors that are less than 12 months where they're rectified, the employee's told and you fix the issue going forward, they don't want to know about it. 
but anything that's beyond the 12 month period, anything that's widespread, their policy position is they want to be told about it and you start the engagement. So the interesting part about the, that for each employer, which is always a complex question, which is one of the preliminary questions we deal with is when do we do it? Do we disclose? Do we not disclose? And then what is the timing for that? And it's it's really lots of different employers have taken lots of different approaches. Some of those that are that are bound by ASX listing obligations have the decision largely made for them. There's disclosure obligations that they have to follow to disclose to the market first. So what often will happen with those employers is they'll disclose to the market and they'll disclose to the floor on the same day and then they'll continue the engagement. There's others who aren't in that space who have to make that call. There have some been some employers that have gone way early, like at the start of their review and said, we've found this issue, we're looking into it, let's start the engagement. There's others that have that have waited until the calcs have been done. They're ready to go to employees and say a week or two out, then they disclose. So there's a lot of strategy in that because obviously when you're dealing with the regulator, they've got to decide how they're going to treat your particular case. And a decision that simple is 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 an important one in in how they will treat you going forward. So it is well, a complex question, question is, I think, that we're constantly yeah. debating, aren't we, Tony? We are. I mean, the question is what so so what do I disclose? I think we've we've failed to pay these people over here for a period of 12 months uh, an amount that might be $100,000 and that would fall within the flows, you know, self-reporting guidelines that you should report. But on the other hand, we haven't calculated how much it is. We don't know whether there are other people in other parts of the business who are affected and maybe we should make those calculations and assessments before we in fact notify the Fair Work Ombudsman. And that's one of those dilemmas that you get through this drip, drip, drip approach that you, you don't know whether you've complied across a, a, a range or variety of areas of your business or it might just be one stream. So th that is a highly nuanced question. It, 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 maybe you've already answered this. Uh, clients are, ans are answering that question just in different ways, aren't they? They are. And I think everyone's on the same page that they want to do the right thing, right? No one is coming into this going, we're going to deliberately underpay our people. People want to rectify it. They want to rectify it as quickly as possible because they don't want to be paying their people incorrectly and their people come first. And this is this is a constant um, theme from all of these matters that we're dealing with. These are not people who are deliberately underpaying. They are. There's been a mistake. They're owning up to their mistake and they are working with the regulator. Um, it's, it's a challenging thing, but a, a often a lot of employers are doing their remediation project and they are also at the same time negotiating with the ombudsman and continuing those discussions to help them understand the scope of the problem. And often the streams mean that remediation actually finishes and the flow stream is still going in terms of the discussions that are happening. And it's, it's a really complex kind of issue to deal with, yeah. I think. Yeah. Look, if I had my chance and, and I was in that insidious position. I, I'd, I'd rather have identified the problem, remediated the problem and then notified the Fair Work Ombudsman because I, I see what happens quite frequently where for a variety of quite very legitimate reasons an employer might notify the Fair Work Ombudsman before they've calculated their full assessment of their, their liability or, or non-compliance. But it's damn hard. Um, we're trying to do that with the with the flow, looking over your shoulder, asking for documents at the same time that you're actually conducting that either remediation process or investigation process. And I imagine you're seeing that as well in, in your clients as well. 
Yeah, I think so. I think a lot of businesses are resourcing these with dedicated people to be just dealing with the issues, but the remediation process on its own, just in terms of the data and the issues and the complexity of a lot of the the instruments that we're dealing with, the, the complexity of the data analytics to, to have that and, and try and get money back into people's pockets as quickly as possible. Running that stream as, as well as running the regulator stream can be incredibly complex for businesses. So, so I want to, I'll turn to that in a minute in terms of you know, how and when you should be conducting the, the investigation and what kind of processes and steps you need to take. But just before I, I deal with that, um, uh, just kind of finishing off on, on the Fair Work Ombudsman. Um, we've already said their guidelines say litigation is not the option of first resort. They want to try and work with employees. I think they are in, in many respects a, a, a good regulator that they try and identify what the issues and compliance issues are. But they they're, they're, <laughs> they're rigorous and you don't want them on their back. But if they're going to prosecute you, um, and, and commence litigation like you've discussed as, as they did in, in Woolworths. What, what are the other options that they can have? Because we, we talk and hear a lot about enforceable undertakings. What, what do those undertakings look like and, and how, does, how do we know the regulator makes a decision between you know, seeking that kind of negotiated outcome instead of a prosecution? It's interesting, you can even, Anna was talking about before about the change, you can just see the change of the approach of the regulator by reading the various undertakings. You look at an undertaking from six years ago and it's focused on education and it's focused on rectifying the issue and education to make sure it doesn't happen again. The ones in the last few years have been fairly formulaic now and that they, they're pretty common. So basically it's an agreement between the FOIA and the employer as to how they're gonna resolve the issue. Um, if you breach the undertaking, they can take you to court. So it's important to negotiate it very carefully. But the relatively standard form includes certainly a contrition payment. For a while there, it was about 5.5% of the total underpayments. And that's kind of varying from employer to employer, depending on the size of the employer and the, the level of complexity. So there's the contrition payment that you have to pay to a consolidated fund, um, almost akin to a court penalty if you, if you took it further. There's regular auditing that, that has to happen that the FOIA has um, visibility of. There's a requirement to report ongoing underpayments to the FOIA. There's a communications campaign where you have to re-communicate to the public, to employees, and, and some employers have had to do more than that. There might be training mechanisms um, in place as part of the undertaking, but the, the critical one I think that's an issue for lots of employers is this concept of an independent expert. So often you'll get a, a accounting firm to do the calculations for you. And this part of the EU is essentially someone else checking their work, someone else who is appointed by the flow that you will pay for as the employer to do a sample checking analysis to make sure that your calculations are right. If that expert decides after discussions with you that your calculations are actually wrong and you now owe more money, you are obliged under the um, undertaking to pay that extra money. So it's a bit of a, um, a checking mechanism to make sure the scope of the review is right and the calculations are right because of the, I guess, um, issues that the four have seen in the past with some of these calculations. And that's a really critical one for lots of employers who've spent a lot of money on accounting firms to try and get this data done to then spend another 
um, payment on getting it checked is a real issue that people are grappling with. But yeah, I, um, I, I know I know lawyers charge a lot of money, so I mean I'm 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 faced up with the pot kettle kind of argument. But accountants are very expensive, and and the analysis of the data in those kind of audit situations is intricate and and very um, heavily dependent on bodies looking through data and, and identifying it. And uh, those costs are, are very significant. As, but hang on, no one's forcing you to enter into an enforceable undertaking. I mean, you can take your chance and say, look, I don't like the deal you're putting up to me. And the alternative is you can prosecute me. Um, so why, why wouldn't you just say that? Well, a lot of it is in the reputational risk. A lot of it is in the additional cost of the independent expert. For some employers, that that's too much. Um, for others, it's in in the reputational risk. They want they've paid their employees. Their employees have have largely there's not if your communications campaign is done in the right way, you're not going to get complaints from employees. And if you do, you resolve them. So the engagement with the employees is is positive. Um, you just want to move on, put systems in place to fix the issue so that then it's over. So, so that's the benefit of the EU. You agree to the EU. Yes, you put mechanisms in place for the audits that you have to deal with, but the issue is over and you can move on. They can't prosecute you if you've signed up to an EU and, that, and that's a real benefit. Um, and, and I was gonna say, Wendy, in either case, you, you... sorry, I'm talking over you. In either case, there's going to be publicity that is um, is generated probably by the Fair Work Ombudsman themselves um, in uh, through media releases, whether it's an enforceable undertaking or a prosecution. So it, it might yeah, be six the, one half dozen of the other. Yeah, and there are, there's also costs if generally what they do is they then investigate, there's notices to produce. So there's costs associated with defending an investigation and then and then costs involved with the prosecution. So it's it's a hard decision, but it's it's one that's pretty key in these matters. Okay, well, thanks, Wendy. That, that's really helpful. Look, I'm going to, again, wind back even further. So before we get to prosecutions or enforceable undertakings, um, Anna, put yourself in a situation that um, you're a general counsel, a non-executive director, head of HR, whatever the case is, and you get a you know one of those standard letters that Sandra Parker sent out uh, to many businesses you know last year, saying that you know you are accountable and what are you doing to ensure that you're complying with your industrial instruments. What do you do? Where do you start? What, what's what's the first step if you haven't done that kind of analysis before? Well, that's exactly the question um, that uh, a person in that role should be grappling with and should spend some time on, Tony. I think the um, I think the tendency in organisations can be to want a result, to want some certainty on what the situation is, and to want it quickly, and to want it in a very low cost way. And the important thing from the outset is to understand that these processes can be um, very big, they can be unwieldy, they can be very time consuming, they can be also costly. So, and they can also, at the end of all that, return a result which might not be entirely what the organisation has in mind if there isn't some intelligent design from the outset. So, what we would say is to make sure you're crystal clear on exactly what it is you're trying to achieve 
why, for what purpose, what do you want to report to the board, what do you want to report to management, what is it they need to know and why, is, is it because you're under um, regulatory scrutiny, is it because you're under union scrutiny, is it because you're receiving claims from employees, is it because you just want some sampling to get a sense of whether this is an issue in your organisation. As Romo says, are you about to go into a deal, are you, are you preparing yourselves for sale, do you need to make sure that your house is in order for that purpose. Whatever the purpose is, you need to understand what it is. And with that very clear in mind, you then need to understand what sort of exercise will allow you to achieve that purpose. Um, and in most cases, it won't be a wholesale review of compliance across the organisation. That, that in, in large organisations is a huge exercise and is, um, is something that uh, is probably unlikely to return results that the organisation might actually be able to work with. In most cases, the, the initial piece of work that needs to be done and some time needs to be spent on this is to work out what the scope is, what sensible confined scope can be applied to give your organisation what it needs to, to answer the questions it's asking. And, and that in itself is a piece of work that needs to be done from the outset. But the important point that we raise to clients is you've got to do that work. It's, it's critical to the success of any project that that work is done, that you spend the time thinking about it and that you get that right. So, Romo, maybe I mean you talked before about doing kind of um, select reviews of of you know point in time compliance across parts of your business. Is is that kind of a common process, or, or what what are you seeing in terms of the most you know typical or effective ways that employers can can conduct the kind of reviews that that Anna's talking about? Yeah, and I think it's really important to start from, and Anna's touched on this: is what is the purpose? So. The approach that a company might take might differ depending on are we actually being proactive and undertaking some sort of proactive compliance audit or are we responding to a claim by an employee or a regulator because that might actually distinguish between what go down. Um, we think about things like scope, things like you know resourcing, to be honest, budget. Budget is a big, it's a big issue. Um, not everyone, a lot of our clients um, tend to be, you know, the bigger corporates who can afford to spend you know, hundreds of thousands, millions of dollars on these things, but, but most companies in Australia can't afford to do that. So an assessment does need to be undertaken on even something as simple as, you know, what is the amount of money that we're happy to spend on it? Um, in terms of the different types of, of analysis, there's, I mean, there's there's probably a combination of a number, but I, I'd say there's probably going to break it down into three buckets. There is the, I call it the high level kind of back of the envelope buffer analysis. Um, so. I'd say it's something that's probably a bit more suitable for companies that have, you know, one, one or two modern awards. You have a workforce that has relatively steady hours. You might be comfortable reconstructing based on assumptions, you know, what are the overtime hours that either people in different classifications or in different role types can be expected to do, you know, build in annual leave loading, build in allowances. I mean, ideally you do it per employee. Um, but to be honest, from what I found, even something as simple as, you know, who are the first aid people that can be a challenge determining that and so you you might just apply it to everyone um, and and then reverse engineer it if it is going any underpayment so that process would largely be let's construct what um, an example employee of a certain classification or role type might be working what does that mean from an award perspective um, or an EA perspective in terms of what the the rate is that we should have paid and then compare it against the rate that, that they actually got paid that's that's I think that's kind of level one analysis. 
on the other end of the spectrum is, and this is what Wendy touched on before, is the, the full comprehensive review. Let's look across the entire workforce. We will reconstruct um, their working hours, build in and develop pay rules, which will be incredibly comprehensive. And you know, everyone, anyone that's had to do them has gone through the pain of those. And then we'll work through the accounting firm um, or we'll work through, I mean, we do a bit of work with some of the technology providers um, that ho hopefully can do these matters a bit more cost effectively, but they will run run the payroll data through their through their systems and that'll spit out a number. And that will be, I mean, if, we, if we're doing it completely, it'll be all the employees across all um, industrial instruments. And similarly, we'll end up with a with a figure that says this is what they should have been paid versus this is what they got paid. And then there's the there's the middle ground, which is the let's pick either certain categories of workers that we think are high risk or certain periods of time that we think are high risk and let's do a sample audit. Um, similarly to what we might do in a transactional context where we say let's pick five or 10%, um, you might do that per award, per award classification um, or just across specific parts of the business. Um, now, in terms of doing the sample, I guess we, we do end up with a similar situation, which is let's reconstruct what their pay pay looks like. Um, but it tends to be a bit more focused. I think those are broadly the three areas. There's probably a combination of those, to be perfectly honest. And ultimately, it's just a question of, of budget and um, I guess the purpose that we're doing it for. Romo, um, just one one issue that jumps out at me um, from, from what you've discussed. And I, I was laughing in the middle of what I wasn't laughing at you, but I, I had this awful thought that's happening in almost every one of these underpayment issues that arises. And that is the bloody insufficiency of the data. We're relying upon you know records that either don't exist or are meant to exist. Uh, and do you extrapolate based in the absence of data? And uh, Wendy, I know you and I have had some clients where we've confronted that problem. And maybe a good way to start before we talk about constructing data is, is to talk about um, the amendment to section 557C of the Fair Work Act and what, what effect that, that has on, on employment records. Massive. That's a question without um, notice, by the way. <laughs> massive, massive issue. So coming out of the kind of vulnerable workers legislation was a little amendment that got slipped in. Um, if if an employer, if there's a proceeding that is brought by an employee, and I have one on foot at the moment, um, alleging underpayment, let's say in overtime, and that entitlement arises post September 2017, and you don't have the record as you're required to have under the Fair Work regulations as to the number of overtime hours worked or the start and finish times of the overtime, then you as the employer have the onus of disproving that, um, that allegation, which if you don't have records, if you're in a circumstance where you've got a white collar workforce, paid an annual salary, there's no overtime policy, there's no authorization of overtime, there's no record of, of hours worked, that immediately puts you on the back foot and you've got to refer to policies and directions and other creative ways of trying to deal with those claims. And certainly, as Anna said before, we're seeing more of them at an individual level, let alone at a, a widespread underpayment piece. So it, it's definitely one of the one of the key issues that we're seeing lately. And, and I think what we are seeing probably, given the greater awareness of this issue generally, is that employers are, are becoming uh, better at two things. Uh, one is record keeping and, may, and ensuring that they are aware of uh, 
whether someone is covered by an award or a relevant industrial instrument and, and whether therefore there needs to be records at the very least of overtime hours and the like. So that's that's the main area. Um, that I, I suppose there are other areas as well. That's really the focus one that, that's becoming much more, more relevant. Um, so in that sense, when when the Fair Work Ombudsman is prosecuting, we're seeing almost every case they've got in their back pocket a claim for, well, you haven't maintained the records and the breach of that. And that was obviously the case in the Woolworths one and, and probably most of the other uh, prosecutions that, that we've seen. So well, thanks, thanks, Wendy. I want to just now focus as we get towards uh, two o'clock um, on, on a little bit on, on what the future is going to hold. And uh, we saw with the government's uh, largely unsuccessful IR reforms over the last uh, 12 months that one of the elements was going to be a federal wage theft uh, reform. And I don't know if there's a lot of appetite within the federal government to, to pursue that, but nevertheless, it was on the agenda for a while. But um, there's no stopping Dan Andrews and the Victorian government, and they have actually introduced their, their own uh, wage theft legislation, which has got some quite fascinating elements um, to it. Um, Roma, I know you've looked at that and um, in, a, in a couple of contexts. Can you maybe just give us a quick summary and, and maybe do you want to speculate whether we're going to see similar legislation in the other states as well? Yeah, so Tony, I guess the, the high-level formulation is that it prohibits you know, deliberate underpayment or dishonest withholding of employee entitlements. And when you read the legislation, it does, it, it kind of strikes that there is a mens rea element to it and I think it, it can be somewhat misleading because when you read it in light of the fact that there is a due diligence defence that doesn't sit all that neatly with this notion that you have to actively and and I use the word deliberately but actively underpay workers um, because if that was the case why would there be a due diligence defence and so there is this notion that that sort of conduct can occur um, by omission um, and if you work through the legislation, there, there are a bunch of deeming provisions which effectively say that, you know, if the companies engage in that conduct, then the, the officers or directors have engaged in that conduct. I think that's the that's probably why, well, that's one of the big reasons why it is suddenly on everyone's radar, um, is that there is direct directorial liability. And so this is something that we think is going to be quite important for boards going forward. Um, there is the question of, well, how do you actually go about exercising due diligence? Um, now that's something that hopefully we'll get we'll get more clarity on as this legislation comes into effect. But I think broadly there's and I'll start from the perspective of most of our clients um, that we've been dealing with have undertaken some sort of historical review and are in a position where they can say, well, here are the issues that we've identified to date. So as a as a status quo starting position, um, we are starting from the correct position and or, or at least know what we need to be doing to ensure that we can do the right thing going forward. Now, depending on the type of business though, some companies might take the approach of, you know, we will we'll include a um, hours of work policy and that'll be one of our ways to go about managing whether or not we pay employees um, extra when they've worked overtime, for example. Um, now, in terms of looking forward, when we're exercising due diligence, I guess it will in part be led by, well, what is our, what is our starting approach to actually ensuring wage compliance? What that might look like is, I think for, for some employers, it might involve a quarterly reconciliation, or at least from our perspective, that is one of the pieces that will give employers a lot of comfort that we have gone about exercising due diligence to make sure that employees are paid properly. Um, 
Another aspect of that will be around process for communication to the board. So from a director perspective, and perhaps the, the distinction might be slightly different between a company exercising due diligence and a director exercising due diligence. I think for, for the most part, it will be one and the same. But from a director perspective, I think it is asking questions around, you know, what steps have we undertaken to try and assess um, underpayment? Are we looking at the right areas? What are the, what are the risk areas? Um, it doesn't mean when we're doing something like a quarterly reconciliation that we necessarily need to look at the entire workforce each and every time. That, that would be obviously the gold standard, but the reality is that it's probably not practicable. So from a director due diligence perspective, the right question might be, well, what are the areas that we have identified risk within? Have we got a process for assessing that? And if we do identify something, how do we make sure that that problem doesn't reoccur? Because I don't think it's going to be satisfactory to just have an issue come up every quarter and just remediate without taking steps to make sure it doesn't come up in the future. Um, I think that's a that's a big piece of it. Is I, I'm I'm not convinced that remediation of itself is going to be enough. There needs to be a I guess a preventative aspect to it if we want to be able to say that we have exercised due diligence to ensure um, that entitlements haven't been haven't been withheld. Um, and I think just just on that one one observation just around the ombudsman that I've that I've that I have just from some of the matters that I've worked on is we we I think initially there was this sense of there are so many large corporates who have this issue that the ombudsman might just be too busy to look at others. Um, my experience in recent times hasn't been consistent with that. We've had some smaller companies uh, and in fact some charitable institutions that have self-disclosed think and remediated thinking that's going to be the end of it. But the ombudsman has been interested and they've asked further questions. Um, so it's just I mean it's it's somewhat of a, of a warning to the group that you know if you are one of the smaller smaller companies don't expect that remediation of itself will relieve the regulator that nothing else needs to be done yeah i mean, I mean it's, it's interesting to speculate about the ombudsman it's very clear they've got finite resources and they can't they, they just don't have the capacity at the moment to be able to be interrogating the data of multiple large underpayment cases and Frankly, what we're seeing on the ground that you know there's there's sometimes a sporadic uh, activity in one place, and then you know there's there's an, a, a lull uh, while they're prosecuting or pursuing others. So they they clearly uh, have got resources issues. Um, but I certainly take your point that, that especially if there is a complaint, uh, whether union or employee um, derived, then then you're going to see more action in that space. I, I think just maybe to finally, you know, finish off on the point of the Victorian laws. You know, this commences on the 1st of July uh, and the obligation is, or, you know, reading from, from, you know, the legislation, an employer can't, as you've already said, dishonestly refuse or not pay someone amounts to which they're entitled. And the due diligence defence says it's a defence, it's a, presumably a complete defence if you can demonstrate that you exercise due diligence to pay or attribute the appropriate pay. The what, what is due diligence is going to vary depending on the circumstances of every case, but it would seem to be my advice to any employer out there, at least that those covered in by the Victorian law, is to be very careful about having some kind of external review or some kind of robust regular reviews of your systems and compliance. And uh, I was going to invite anyone if they think they're going to see more of this in the other state legislatures. Is anyone hearing stuff in uh, throughout the country on that? 
we've already got laws in Queensland that are actually in the criminal code right now. Um, so we're ahead of you. Uh, it's it's in theft and stealing. So it's again, yes. that kind of intentional element. Um, but in comparison to Victoria, Victoria haven't now uh, appointed head of the um, body that is going to administer that act as well as the, the long service leave act and, and other acts. So you're going to see a lot of activity, I think, more in Victoria than I suspect in Queensland. I don't know, I don't think we've seen the last of the federal legislation, though. And I think it's going to be really interesting, and we've debated this before, about constitutional issues between the two laws. Um, I think the more that's done in the Victorian space, obviously there's an overlap with the Fair Work Act, and if there is an inconsistency between federal and state legislation, the federal law trumps it. So... I don't think we've seen the issue um, at its end in terms of the enforceability of those laws. So, uh, but, but certainly in relation to long service leave, we've seen an uptick in Victoria uh, of yeah. people getting random audits. And I'm, I'm going to expect that the same thing will happen in the next year or so. Thanks, um, Wendy. Thank you. And it's, we've, we've reached our time. Um, the hour has fine. I want to thank um, Anna Romo and Wendy for uh, your views over the course of the last hour. I think it's been really helpful. And um, I don't care if people were bored by this subject. I find it fascinating. And I think it's also going to keep us and most other of our clients pretty busy over the, the next uh, year or so ahead. And just before we go, a final heads up on one thing that we are hearing a little bit about. It's um, There are some whispers that there are going to be some amendments to the uh, Federal Sex Discrimination Act coming forward in the next week, uh, maybe even sooner than that. Uh, so we'll no doubt be convening another one of these uh, webinars to talk about the changes uh, that uh, might be implemented in response to Kate Jenkins' Respect at Work report. Um, thank you everyone for participating today. I hope you've enjoyed the session and I look forward to catching up to you um, with many of you as, uh, as the year progresses. Thanks so much.